Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. You know, the, the last two weeks, as we've journeyed through this, you'll remember that we discussed, first and foremost, that Luke was written to buttress, to support the faith of Theophilus. It wasn't written to give them this feeling of sentimentality, but it's actually written to strengthen someone's faith. And so as we study Luke, we recognize that it's written, to a certain degree, to strengthen our faith, our resolve, our trust in Jesus. And so the first week we opened it up, and the, the account we saw was that of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we recognized that God overcame the improbable. He took this woman who was old, this, this man who was advanced in years, and he gave them children. He took this woman who was known, people didn't refer to her as, as Elizabeth, they referred to her, oh, the, the barren lady, the barren lady. And he took her and he gave them children, so he overcame the improbable. Last week, we studied the account of, of Jesus being conceived and, and Mary becoming pregnant, and so he overcame the impossible. We saw the Virgin Mary become pregnant. And so we're studying and learning about this God who overcomes the improbable, this God who overcomes the impossible, and today what we see as we go through this are the response of these two women. So kind of as this storyline is unfolding, as this narrative is unfolding, the angel Gabriel went and he spoke to Zechariah, and Zechariah had a response. Angel Gabriel went and he spoke to Mary, and Mary had a response, and now we see these two paths begin to converge. Look how they begin here in verse 39. It says, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. So you'll remember that the angel Gabriel came and he spoke to Mary, and what he told her is, on effect, you might be able to believe what I have told you because the one who is called barren is now with child. And so he uses, the angel Gabriel uses the sign of Elizabeth's pregnancy to confirm the word given to Mary. Do you see how that's working? And so he uses this word as a confirmatory place to, to assure Mary of the truth imparted to her. So the angel leaves, and, and what we read is, in those days, so soon after this, this young woman, this, this probably 13-year-old child, raises up and leaves in haste, in a hurry. She's gathering her things, she's speaking to her family, and she heads out something probably like about 80 miles. And so she heads out on this three- or four-day trek heading towards Elizabeth. Now, the text doesn't tell us, but, but we can understand we've been in situations of where we are anxious, where we're ready to see how something's going to work out. And so the, the natural thoughts occurring to her mind are, like, I wonder how our conversation's going to go. I can't wait to see Elizabeth. I can't wait to see this one who has struggled with infertility for so long finally being pregnant. And so she makes this terrific trip. She comes into the house of Zechariah and she greets Elizabeth. And something amazing takes place. Something truly miraculous takes place. Look what he says here. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. I've never been pregnant. This should not be a shock to many of you. Those of you that didn't get this, we'll talk later about biology, but this should not be a shock, really, to any of you that, that, that I've never been pregnant, but I can remember uh, each of the three pregnancies Valerie's gone through, our boys had different levels of activity, kind of rolling, and, and I would make this sound right there in her stomach, and the baby was like, bam, 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 
So it's not a good sign for what life is like for me when they're caring for me and they're the ones putting the diapers on me. But, and, so, and, and so I know what it is to see a child be active in the womb, but the, the verbiage used here isn't talking about the natural process of a child just kind of rolling back and forth or, or throwing little light jabs and punches. This is the same verbal idea used of talking about a mountain skipping like a calf. It leaped. It jumped. And what this indicates to us, if you look back in verse 15 of chapter 1, the prophecy made of John the Baptist when Gabriel comes in. He says, for he will be great of the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And look at, listen to this. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from when? Even from his mother's womb. John the Baptist in utero. By the power of God, offers this, this unbelievable recognition of what God has done in Mary's life. That's what we see here. Now, so we, we read it and we see this, and you say, This is just ridiculous. This is just ridiculous. The baby had hiccups, she drank a Coke. Because she's going to a sonogram and she wants the baby to be active. So it's just like hitting the speed bag. But, but we don't see any of those things in here. Coke had not yet been, been invented and boxing and hitting a speed bag was not some part of her regimen. Look at this. The baby leaped in her womb. You've got to recognize. It's not just that Zechariah and Elizabeth had a child and it went on to do some really neat and amazing things. The miraculous was taking place, bundled within the mundane. Do you see that? The miraculous was, was shrouded, covered in the mundane. And so when Mary comes through the door, John the Baptist, in utero, hears the voice of the one who would carry Jesus, and he is testifying to the greatness of Jesus by leaping within his mother's stomach. Like if this doesn't make you read this and say, look at the things God overcame. Look at the things God demonstrated his power in the most unlikely of ways. The most unlikely of ways. Using a baby in utero. A baby. Not fully developed, but six months along. Maybe roughly a pound. And he leaps inside his mother to the point where she's able to tell something is going on. This is the power of God shown within the mundane. This is the power of God shown within the lives of these people who are faithful to follow through on God's word. So he leaps. And look what happens next. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes on Elizabeth and she enters into a word of prophecy. She exclaimed with a loud cry. Actually, this effectively means she yelled, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. On the basis of the child leaping and the Holy Spirit coming in and leading her to understand this, she exclaims prophetically about who Mary is carrying who Mary is carrying. Now remember, exclusively, the prophecy given to Zechariah isn't something he's been wholly able to impart to Elizabeth. Why? Because he's mute. He can't talk. 
He's unable to convey those things that happened to him when he was in offering the sacrifice. But likely the brother's been out like pulling out, uh, pulling out different prophecies, showing me like here, like this epic game of pantomiming has likely taken place where he's like, two words, it's a motion, no, it's not a motion picture. Okay, like you get this, second syllable. He's been trying to get her to understand what's taking place. But Elizabeth, in this moment, the Holy Spirit comes upon her and she prophesies and she looks at Mary and she says, blessed are you among women. Protestants are not big on Mary. If if you come from a a Catholic background, when you became a Protestant, when you came into the to like a Baptist church or Presbyterian church or whatever, you're like, where'd Mary go? I don't, I don't see Mary anywhere. We don't talk about Mary anywhere. But we see right here, look what the text says. Blessed are you among women. Mary's incredibly blessed, incredibly favored by God. Not to be worshipped. She's not a co-redemptress. She's not Theotokos. She's not God-bearer. But she is blessed. But it's important for us as we go through and we understand this to understand the reality of why she is blessed. Now so far in the Gospel of Luke, we've only come across two people that are described as being righteous and walking in all the statutes and commandments of the Lord. And you remember who those are? It's Zechariah and Elizabeth. When it comes to Mary, she's this insignificant girl, don't really know anything about her other than she's not yet been She's not yet consummated her relationship with Joseph. And so we find in this that, again, she's referred to in extraordinary language. Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary. The baby leaped in her womb, and she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women. The basis of Mary's blessedness stemmed from Jesus. The basis, the sole purpose, the sole area that, it, that is met out with blessedness in the case of Mary is found in Jesus. The same is said for you and I. The only reason that we are blessed stems from our forgiveness in Jesus Christ. The sole reason Mary is blessed, look at this, what it says next, is because of the fruit of her womb. The only reason Mary is significant and highly significant is because of Jesus. That's what we see here. She's not God-bearer. She's not co-redemptress. We don't receive salvation from her and Jesus. We see, though, that she is blessed among women. It's important that we catch that distinctive. Look how, to what degree, Elizabeth believes that Mary's blessed. Verse 43, read this. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? She gets it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Elizabeth understands that the Messiah resides within Mary. By the power of the Holy Spirit, when she's professing to this, she understands that the Messiah is in this, and so she is awed that Jesus' mother would come to visit her. Why is it for me how blessed I am, how special I feel that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Look at this, verse 44. For behold... When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. She gets it. This is how we can point to it and say, John's leaping within his mother's womb is a testimony to the Messiah coming. What was John sent to do? He was sent 
to prepare the way for Jesus. And how does he declare Jesus first and foremost? It's not when they meet at the Jordan. The first place John begins to declare Jesus in his Messiahship is where? It's in utero. This unlikely, unbelievable places, and it takes the Holy Spirit moving within the life of Elizabeth to let her see this. But God is, is, is so amazing, he's desiring to show his magnificence to such a degree that he brings his spirit to bear on a child in utero and allows that spirit to testify to his greatness when his mom walks in the door and speaks. That's the power of God. This isn't some story we read and we just say, wow, this is, this is unbelievable, this is something that, that you know, just kind of makes us uncomfortable. This is a story we read and we walk away recognizing the terrific power of God. We don't read this and try and rationalize this. We don't read this and try and bring this 21st century understanding of medicine in and say, well, you know, actually, kind of developmentally, this is what this is, and likely this is what this is. No. Luke tells us from the first place, this is written to support our faith, not to support our craving to rationalize what is miraculous. Do you understand that? Do you see the radical importance of that? If you read this and you say, I really just wish this was a little bit more technical, I really just wish that they would break this down a little bit more for me, then you're missing the picture of the whole thing. This was written to strengthen your faith, to strengthen your resolve in Jesus so that you might look at it and say, Jesus works the miraculous. God works the miraculous, and it is in the miraculous that he's able to be worshipped, praised by a child in utero. It's laughable. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's, this is the type of conversation if you're to have out loud about anybody else at Starbucks, people around you are like, have you heard the freak job? He's just weird. But in, in terms of opening our Bible and recognizing this is something God brought to bear to display his power, to display his majesty, we read it and what it leads us to isn't this thing of saying, this is really embarrassing, I can't talk about this with my unbelieving friends, but it leads us to worship him because it's a display of his power. This prophecy, she says, when I heard your voice, the child left in my womb. Blessed am I, why should you come to me? Look at this, verse 45. Elizabeth turns and she recognizes this about Mary. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now this is a radical departure from what had been Elizabeth's kind of situation, what she had seen. Her husband goes in. He's offering the incense on the altar. He has this, this critical engagement with the angel Gabriel in, in chapter 1 and verse 20, what we read is, the angel said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So we have this radical departure here. And Elizabeth, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, recognizes the difference of her situation in regards to her husband heard, he didn't believe, and he's He's just mute. He can't, he can't engage. He can't convince people. He's not able to relate his situation on the basis of what he did not believe. She sees Mary come in. Mary who did not question, who did not critically question, who on the basis of what she'd been told about her cousin moved with haste to travel 80 miles to come and see her. 
And on the basis of this, Elizabeth is able to offer this tremendous prophecy and say, blessed is she who believed. Blessed is she who believed. Belief in Jesus is always linked to faith. It's not this rational process where we move through and we figure out what's the, what's the best of a whole lot of options. And so you weigh out Buddhism, you weigh out Hinduism, you weigh out Taoism, you weigh out animism. You weigh out any other ism that you'd like to throw in that list. And at the end of it you say, I think this is probably the most likely. I think this is probably the most rational. This is why C.S. Lewis said the first thing he would argue for was the miraculous. He said, because you see, for somebody to come to faith in Jesus who disbelieves the miraculous, they're going to have to throw things out left and right. So he said the first thing that he argues for is the miraculous. He would not seek to make Christianity tenable, more easily held for for the person of high rationality, for the academic, for the intellectual. He himself being an academic and an intellectual. But instead, he would argue for the miraculous. You see, at the heart of of the gospel, at the heart of this God who would speak and create, is this steady display of a God who works, not bound by those things we're readily able to observe, but God who works in this display of the miraculous. He overcomes the improbable, he moves in light of the impossible, and he displays his power in the most unlikely of ways. He could have hired a skywriter, he could have had a marching band of angels march out and tell everybody what was going to happen. And he said he finds this girl from this backwater town that's a byword, Nazareth. And he allows her to bear the Son of God. Now look at Mary's song. This is referred to as Mary's Magnificat, this terrific uh, praise of God. She's making much of God in this. So this is on the basis of those things that have just been said. Mary responds and she says, My soul magnifies the Lord. Basically saying everything that's in me, every part and fiber of my very being is praising God. My soul, my very innermost being magnifies. It is is created, it is built to praise God. She is giving us within this 47 through 56 a terrific understanding of a Christian's response to the faithfulness of God. A Christian's response to God. This is what she gives us, and it's all, or a lot of it is tied to this Old Testament understanding. My soul magnifies God. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And the amazing thing is Mary goes through this. We recognize that Mary's not highly educated. She's not highly regarded. She's not old, sage, and full of wisdom. And so we see that God is doing something rich in her to magnify who? To magnify himself. Flip over to Matthew chapter 5. I kind of want to read this to set our minds in the right place before we walk through this Luke and uh, this passage here in Luke. And the reason is, the rationale behind this is that I really think to, to, to adequately understand all those things Mary is saying, we need to let Jesus kind of form uh, the, the background or understanding of this. Now, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is, is teaching, it's, it's commonly referred to as the Beatitudes, and he offers these, these maxims, these understandings that are countercultural, not just in his day, but in our day as well. And so he goes through, and what we're going to find as we walk through this passage in Luke is that 
Mary's testimony about God, his faithfulness to her, ultimately his faithfulness to those around her, is welcome. It is at home within the teachings of Jesus. Look here in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus comes in there, and in Matthew chapter 5, he gives us this understanding of this radical cultural reversal. So it's generally assumed, much like it is in our day, if you saw someone who was wealthy, you saw someone who was healthy, you saw someone who was just doing well, you generally recognized that the hand of God was upon this person's life. We effectively do the same thing. You see someone who is poor, you see someone who is homeless, and, and in some ways you begin to think, what did they do wrong, end up where they are, why isn't God blessing this person? We, we tend to find it easier to recognize the blessing of God being upon the rich and those that, that, that are similar to ourselves as opposed to those who are impoverished, hungry, and suffering. What God shows us is that it's the soul, the person who recognizes their impoverished state before a holy God who is blessed. It's the soul, it's the person who recognizes their impoverished state, their need, who is blessed. This is why in the later teaching Jesus said, it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Now scholars have sought to kind of soften that and and said, well, the eye of the needle is this really small gateway on, on, on one side of it. This was just scholars trying to prove that. That's been debunked. That's been shown to be false. He's displaying hyperbole. You hold up a needle, you look at the eye of it. I should know I did some sewing last week. I sewed a button on. If you don't believe me, Allie Pletcher was there. Never stuck myself. It's impossible. I'm looking at the eye of the needle. I can't get the thread through it. I have to figure out, I have to Google, how do you use the needle, the thread puller thing? Apparently, lots of people have searched that. And you look at this and you say, like, I could hold it up like this and kind of fit the camel through there. Recognize it's hyperbole. It's impossible outside of God moving. And so what God does is he shows that it's those who recognize their impoverished state before him who are blessed that he works with. It's the self-sufficient, it's the prideful, it's the arrogant, it's those that say, I don't need God, I can figure this out on my own, that God just says, fine, figure it out on your own. And he stays far from them as they stay far from him. Recognize that God moves in the lives of those who recognize and call out to him. They recognize their need for him, their inability to accomplish it on their own, He moves in the lives of these people. Look what Mary says of herself. She's been called blessed. She's been called favored. She's been built up. 
Elizabeth has said, you are blessed among women. People will always recognize you as blessed. And look what she says. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She's praising God because he looked on someone who was insignificant. She's praising God because he looked at somebody who was completely humble. What does it mean in that? She saw no significance in her life. She did not make the surprise of herself and say, of course God would work in me because I'm the most humble person I know. I'm, I'm, I'm unbelievably humble. I'm amazingly humble. No, she recognizes in herself that she is low, that she is abased, that she comes from this byword community, that there is nothing significant in her outside the movement of God. God has to be praised because he looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, verse 48, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. She recognizes the significant thing done in her life on the basis of God's providential wisdom, kindness, and grace. We refer to Mary as blessed, not because of how amazing she was, but because of the amazing thing God did in her, using her in this way. Look at verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now Mary is tapping into this this Old Testament kind of exposition of all these ways that God might be described. And here she taps into Zephaniah 3.17. Let me read it to you. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The thing she discovers about God in this and testifies to us is the mightiness of his display. The mighty nature of God. He has done great things. Now she articulates it for herself. She's done mighty things for me and holy is his name. On the basis of those things God has done for Mary, in Mary, it leads her to worship God. This kind of calls on us to a certain degree to offer a level of introspection, asking of God, God, what are some of those things you have done for me that I have yet to recognize? And when we recognize those things God has done for us, it leads us to praise him and to worship him. Now, the difficult thing in this is that occasionally some of those things God does for us are difficult. Allowing sorrow, allowing discomfort, allowing pain, allowing death to come and to bear and to be in our lives. And on the basis of these things, we still recognize the goodness, the love, the mercy, and the appropriateness of worshiping God in the midst of trials. God did not give Mary an easy path to walk. He gave her a terrific burden to carry. So often we read this and we say, oh, that's just amazing. I mean, she's, she's raising the Son of God. I bet he was a model child. I bet his, his diapers were always clean. I mean, he's potty trained from the moment he comes out. No, I mean, he was born in all ways human. He took the form of a servant. She went through all of these things. 
As a mother, she saw her son ridiculed. As a mother, she saw her son suffer. He did not call her to an easy path. God displays his might in her. Look at verse 50. There's a change here from 49 to 50. Starting in verse 50, she moves from this this personal application to spreading it to others. He says, in his mercy... It is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. God's mercy is for those who fear him. God moves in the hearts of those who feel, who recognize their impoverished stature place before God. He's not moving in the hearts of the proud, those who say they can do it on their own, those who who see no need of God who have no need for God. Look what he says here. Look what Luke records to us. His mercy is for those who fear him. Then he tells us that this is a living statute that endures from generation to generation. It will always be this way. He has shown the strength of his arm and he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Now it was believed in the first century people located the thought process not in the mind but in the heart. And so those things that you're rationally thinking through were bound up in your heart. And so that's why they referred to it as having a prideful heart or having a prideful spirit. And so what we see, the heart of the proud, the heart of the prideful, uh, looks at God, evaluates his offer, and says, I'm not interested. I'm not interested. The benefits package comes much too late for me to fully enjoy. The, 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 the things you call me to are sacrifice. The things you call me to are difficult. You say that, that if, you are, if you are persecuted, that we too should be persecuted? Why in the world would anyone sign up for this? Can you imagine going to a job interview, and, and as you're there, your employer says, hey, look, we have the worst customers in the face of the world. I mean, they're awful. They come in, and, and they're, they're unruly. They're, they're not lovable. I don't even want to talk about what they do to the bathroom. And FYI, it's your responsibility to clean that. If somebody offered you a job like that, you would be a fool to take it. But we recognize in Christianity, recognizing Christianity that when we come to Jesus, it's recognizing our impoverished state and we come into this relationship with Jesus and he forgives us of our sins and he says to us, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Our lot is not significantly different than his. Why should we seek to make it so? Why should we seek to make it so by by limiting the effects that our Christianity has on our lives? By not praying for the unbelievable, by not asking God, by not laying it all there before him and saying, I will go where you send me, my life is yours. We don't pray these things because we're terrified that God will say, fine, go to Zimbabwe, go to Ghana, go to China, move to Saudi Arabia. We don't pray those things because to a certain degree, for so many of us, for so many in our culture, this invitation to come to Jesus is incredibly appealing. But the invitation to stay with Jesus and to suffer with him is more than we thought we were getting into. A life following Jesus, as indicated by what Mary is telling us here, is a life 
fully accepting the forgiveness of Jesus, but fully surrendering to live for Jesus. You see that. His mercy is for those who fear him. This fear is something that should sustain us, our right understanding of who God is and where we are in the economy of his grace. God moves against the proud. He moves against the mighty. Look at verse 52. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. God is moving in the lives of those who recognize their need for him. We still need him. One of the terrific misfortunes of kind of manifesting in American Christianity is this complete and ready acceptance of the forgiveness of Jesus, but in the midst of our lives, in the midst of difficulties, we just, like, we're we're uncomfortable with it. And so we grow in pride, we grow in this sense of, oh, I've got it figured out now, like, I understand the cycle of belief before Jesus, recognize, stay humble. Stay hungry for righteousness. Stay in the midst of this situation where you are broken before him. Don't allow yourself to to forsake the brokenness of God. It's a terrific thing for God to bring you low. Why? So that he might exalt you. So that when people look at you and see you weep and see you broken, they might take comfort that someone was bold enough to be broken in public. We're wounded. We're scarred, we're tattered, we're victims. But we don't want to be seen as such. Don't want to be seen by others as having issues. We don't want to be seen as others of not having it all together. Because in the incredibly public time in which we live, you've got to be posting positive things, you've got to be keeping up this, this public image Man, just be real. Find people that you can walk through life with that when it hits the fan, when it is rough, you can call them and say, I don't know what to do. I'm, I, I, I'm broken. My husband's going to leave me. Our relationship is, is terrible. My wife's going to leave me. Our relationship is terrible. And it's probably my fault, but I don't even know what I did. This is who he calls us to be. Not perfect people pretending once a week before others. I got the best clothes on. I got the car wash yesterday. I get out of the car, I walk into church, and I'm like, it is game time. It's time to put my Christian face on for people. This is a lie. It's not God honoring. It's not helpful for anybody you encounter. The most transformative thing you can do is to be broken before other people and to let them love you. God shows us this picture that we are a body of people gathered together. We all have issues. Are there any married people in this room that have not had an argument with their spouse? Please raise your hand. We all want to receive tutelage. (laughs) Just me. Okay. That's right. Wife's not here today. No need for you to verify that. We all have needs. We're all broken people. The sooner we realize that and realize that is not a fault. It's a virtue to recognize your brokenness. It's a virtue to recognize your need for God. It is wrong to wallow in your brokenness. 
Mary recognizes it's going to be difficult, but still she praises God in the middle of it, in the midst of it. She is going and being with family. She's investing herself in the life of Elizabeth. Elizabeth is investing herself in the life of Mary. We need to invest ourselves in the lives of those that we're journeying through this life with. This is why Sunday school, this is why life group, this is why accountability groups are so vitally important to the life of the Christian. God did not create you to be a lone survivor. He created you to be a part of a body. Some of you are cogs in the machine. You're necessary, but you're not important. We need the necessary and the important. And it's up to God to determine what role you'll play, not your own choice. Do you see how that works? The role that God has for you to play in the lives of those of this church and the lives of those of this community is something that he is leading and guiding. And it is up to us to submit ourselves to him so that he might be able to use us for his end, for his good. Continue to read in this. He's brought down the mighty... He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in the remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Luke lays out for us this song of Mary. We recognize that he, he plays in here this understanding that it is this blessing to Abraham and his, to his offspring forever. As we studied a few weeks ago in Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, God blessed Abram. So why? That he might be a blessing to all the families of the earth. If you are a believer in faith in Jesus Christ today, you are the recipient of the blessing that started in Abram and is met out in you today. This is what God has done. This is what God has done. This is how he has shown his power. But we recognize that in the midst of this terrific news, this this amazing thing that has happened for all of humanity, he's calling on us to respond. And so there are those who have not yet responded. And Jesus himself, when speaking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, said these things. He said, thus it is written in Luke chapter 24, starting verse 46, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. God has done a terrific, amazing, unbelievable, improbable, unlikely, impossible thing in the life of Jesus. And on the basis of this impossible thing that God did in the life of Mary, he comes to you and to me, and he beckons you to believe. He doesn't come to you and say, be encouraged. He doesn't come to you and say, take heart. He comes to you and says, I have overcome the world. I have overcome sin. I have overcome death. Come to me. We come to God, we receive forgiveness. We come to God, we receive peace. God worked the improbable in Elizabeth, the impossible in Mary. 
He raised his son up from positive obscurity. He allowed him to be put to death. And it's on the basis of believing these things to be true. Of recognizing your impoverished state that you cannot be good enough, that you cannot be right enough, that you cannot attend church enough, that you cannot give enough money or say enough of the right things enough times in a row to merit the love of God, that he comes to all those who are hungry, he comes to all those who are broken, and he freely extends to you forgiveness. For some of us, we need to forgive ourselves. And then come to God, turning away from our sins and freely receiving the forgiveness he extends to us. This is what his offer is to you today. This is what his offer is to you today. The approaching light is the story of Jesus coming near to humanity. But each of us, just as Mary and Elizabeth's stories intersect there in Elizabeth's home, each of our stories intersect God's story at the point of belief or disbelief. This is what he lays before you. Now, many of us have believed in Jesus. We have confessed our sins. We have repented. We have turned and we are following him. And what he calls on you to do is to be continually faithful to the God who has enacted the impossible to bring about spiritual life in you. Be faithful. Continue to cry out to God that he might make you holy as he himself is holy. Be faithful. Be faithful to continually cry out to God for forgiveness. He has not saved you so that you might be perfect. He saved you in the midst of your impoverished state, lifts you up, and has created us in such a way as that we are forever dependent upon him. Amen? Would you pray with me? God, I am so thankful that you did not create me perfect. God, that you made me in such a way that I am deeply flawed and I recognize my need of a Savior. God, I pray that you would keep me broken, that you would keep me humble. Father, I pray for those other believers in this room that you would keep them broken and humble. You would help us to be faithful enough to you that we would share our brokenness, our humility with those around us. And Father, we pray for those who have yet to submit their lives to Jesus, that you would move in their hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, that just as you overcame the improbable with Elizabeth, the impossible with Mary, so too you would overcome the impossible in their hearts and in their lives. That through the power of your Holy Spirit, you might work to produce life in them, faith and belief. God, that you would help them to respond to the promises found in your gospel, in your word. That just as you're bringing down the mighty, just as you're bringing down the rich, so too that you'll be bringing down their opposition to you. And as they are broken, that you would raise them up to newness of life with Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this for our family members. We pray this for the lost of this world. We pray this for the lost of our community. In Christ's name, amen.